Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So begins Tolstoy's well-known opening to Anna Karenina, or Anna Karenina, if you're a good old boy from Alabama like me. And in fact, this line, uh, it's developed into something of a principle across various disciplines of life and learning. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So the Anna Karenina principle, as it's now called, holds that it is possible to fail in many ways, but to succeed in only one way, by avoiding each of the routes to failure. An example was provided by Jared Diamond in his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. He discussed why so few animal species have been domesticated. So unless an animal is easy to feed, unless it grows rapidly, unless it breeds well in captivity, unless it has a benign temperament, unless it does not run away when frightened, and unless it has a social stable hierarchy, domestication is not going to happen. Think, for instance, of the differences between horses and zebras. Now, we might forget the fact that many teenage boys fail these criteria, too. But the point of this principle is to say that unhappy families tend to fail in varied ways, but a successful family, a happy one, will have succeeded in all the sufficient ways And in this way, they are all alike. So onto the heap of this theory, Jesus throws another qualifier. One must hate one's family in order to find true happiness. I'm not sure that Jesus is actually all that concerned about our happiness. He might be concerned that we abide in joy. We could certainly ask the first martyrs of the church about whether or not he was primarily concerned with happiness. But the thesis of my sermon is essentially this. Whether we're speaking of our families or any relationships in which we find ourselves, we must learn to hate them in the right way so that we don't learn to hate them or they don't learn to hate us in the wrong way. What a strange thesis. That is, we must learn to hate them in the right way, not as objects of our desires and hopes, but instead as mutual subjects that we stand beside in a turn toward God. And in this way, we may avoid learning to hate them in the wrong way by shouldering them with more than they can bear. But before exploring this further, we might start off this morning with a simple question. How on earth are we to make sense of the gospel reading in light of the epistle reading. On the one hand, we have Jesus saying to hate our family, and on the other hand, we have Paul telling Philemon to love his slave as family. So what gives here? To be sure, the words we hear from the lips of Jesus are some of the most troubling and difficult in all of Scripture, and these are words which are raised by skeptics and atheists alike as examples of the inconsistency of Scripture. Now, our teaching from Philemon had a great effect in the early church. Its vision to love the slave like a brother grew ultimately into a rejection of the institution of slavery in the 4th century by the great bishop Gregory of Nazianzus. 
so does Jesus need to read some Philemon? Is this Jesus and Luke the same Jesus that is who told us to love our enemies and who in Matthew said that one who calls his brother a fool shall be in danger of hellfire? And isn't Jesus, by the way, violating the commandment about honoring one's father and mother? Well, something tells me that Jesus' command here is not going to end up in our children's Sunday school curriculum. What did you learn today, Johnny? To hate my family. (laughs) Well, as usual, the story in Luke makes us squirm precisely in order to make us look beyond the surface. And the context of the gospel passage clarifies our conundrum. And in fact, good hyperbole does this. And Jesus is a master rhetorician. For it is only in the very next chapter we might remember where Jesus speaks again of the fatherly love shown towards the prodigal son. But here in chapter 14, he's making a different but complementary point. He's saying that his peace does not come through the sword of the empire, but through the cross on Calvary, which his disciples must likewise take up. In doing so, it will force upon them a question of where their true loyalty lies. Will Jesus be their supreme Lord or will something or someone else? They must maintain a thoroughgoing commitment, not to one's family alone, but to the new family created through Christ, the church, and to the father of this family who has adopted them, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the way of this father, and it is the way of the cross that Jesus is calling people into. He's relativizing the natural family to create a new one, the family of God. Now, the natural family, it's not dissolved, but it's rightly ordered within the larger salvific family of our Heavenly Father. And this was scandalous, precisely because salvation came down through ethnic and familial lines in Judaism. And Jesus says, no, no, my vision is broader than that. Of all the things that we tend to idolize, family might be one of the easiest and the most subtle forms of idolatry. We at least know that sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as the kids say. Actually, no kids say that really anymore. But we all know those things can be more easily seen as vacuous and ultimately dead-end streets. But family? It is, after all, our Christian duty to be family people. It is for the good of culture to love families. Nevertheless, Jesus is always calling people at all times to take up the cross and even family. Yes, family can get in the way of this. And so therefore, Jesus says again, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So does Jesus call us here straightforwardly to hate our family? No. But every good thing, including family, can become an ultimate thing. And if you don't have family, we could easily insert friends into the mix who often become our family in the absence of one. So a surefire way to make sure that your family is not happy in life is to place them above God, thereby making them shoulder all of your hopes and your dreams and your needs and your aspirations which they simply cannot shoulder like God can. 
I mean, how often have we seen parents who are living vicariously through their children, placing all of their own significance on how well their child performs or scores on the test or measures up against the children of their friends? If we want them to be happy, if we want them to love well, we must learn to hate them in the way that Christ commands, which is another way of saying to love them as God intends. That is, as subjects with whom we love in a mutual turn towards our maker, not as objects of our ultimate devotion, which only God can fulfill. So we have a weekly, uh, a daily clergy Bible study here at St. George's, and we were reflecting together this week on the college admission scandal, which broke last year. What a terribly sad reality. The motivation of these parents involved are complex and multifaceted. I don't want to oversimplify, but surely they are rooted in part in an elevation of our children to an idolatrous level. We must learn that our children are not what they have, what they do, or what others say about them. Because ultimately, they too will be judged on how well they take up their cross. So are we preparing them for that? I'm sure many of these children wrapped up in this scandal now hate their parents in the wrong way, precisely because their parents didn't hate them in the right way, the way Jesus envisions here. Now, of course, there is more to the passage than Jesus' hate speech. We might ask again, aren't his other commands here unrealistic? How can we possibly give up all our possessions? How can we possibly count the cost of following him? There's no way that we could ever map this out any more than we could map out the total cost of committing to a marriage and all that it entails on the front end. So what is Jesus up to? I think Jesus is here stirring up within the hearts of his hearers a crisis. They're confronted with questions that force them to consider where do their loyalties ultimately lie? And to understand that God requires them to give him everything. T.S. Eliot once captured the ideal of religious life, saying it is a, complete, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. This includes our family. It also includes our possessions, as the passage makes clear, and our plans for the future. Christians who give up their possessions, who love their enemy, who walk into the white-hot center of danger for the sake of others, they always do so because their allegiance to Jesus Christ is ultimate. Not out of duty, but out of love from having encountered the source of all life and love. When you truly come to know the grandeur of the gospel, the majesty and the hope that we have as God's children, then you will be able to give and to love as God gives and loves. And we'll also learn to receive the ones we love back as gifts of grace who spend their lives on others instead of of being in our hands kind of biological widgets that we just make in our own image. God is the one who forms us like out of clay. So in his book, The Second Mountain, written by David Brooks, I highly recommend it, 
Brooks asks, why would Mother Teresa have spent so many decades in the slums? Why would Thomas Merton have spent those decades in the monastery? Why would Dorothy Day have spent those decades in living a life of poverty, giving bread to the poor? Why would Dietrich Bonhoeffer have returned to Germany to resist Hitler with the good chance that he would get killed in the fight, which indeed he did? Don't these people know that there are beach vacations to be taken and nice restaurants to be experienced? Well, Brooks is highlighting that there is so much more to life than what we can consume. And it might be that for many of us, in order to take up our cross, we need to put down our phone. In order to take up our cross, we need to put down the cocktail glass. We could insert a lot of things in here. But yes, also in order to take up our cross, we need to let go of our children or our friends. But if we do so, if we do so in the way that God envisions, we will gain them back and more. They will not then be products of our making, but vessels of God's divine providence, whom we have nourished and loved and discipled to be sure, but for whom we have also modeled an ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ and the requisite humility and repentance when we fall short, which we will inevitably do. So my prayer is simply this that we learn to hate our children in the right way, that is, as mutual subjects turned towards God, so we don't learn to hate them or have them hate us in the wrong way, that is, as the objects of our desires and hopes that only God can shoulder. If we do this, we just might find that by losing our loved ones, we actually gain them back again as the gift that God intended for them to be all along. Amen.